Good morning, West Bowles. This morning we're launching our summer series on spiritual discipline, something we're calling Swimming in the Deep End. And what better place to start than with something God calls us to do without ceasing? That's a long time. What better place to start than with prayer? And when we say prayer, it's more than simply saying grace quickly before a meal. Prayer is an opportunity, an incredible opportunity, to immerse ourselves in communion with God. Our speaker this morning is Dr. Don Payne. Don is Associate Dean and Assistant Professor of Theology and Ministry at Denver Seminary. I had the privilege of getting to know Dr. Payne both in and out of the classroom. In addition to being one of my professors, he was also a spiritual development mentor. And I had the pleasure of working closely with his wife, Sharon, and their kids during my time when I was teaching at Front Range Christian. But most of all, Don is a cherished friend. And we're all about to be blessed by what he has to share with us this morning on prayer. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Don Payne as together we go swimming in the deep end. Better him than me. It's good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Right out of the gate, I want us to hear the word of the Lord. If you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 6. Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 5 through 13. Matthew 6. This is the word of the Lord. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you a, a stupid question. Now, I know there's not supposed to be anything as stupid questions. One of my favorite sarcastic posters says, there are no stupid questions, but there are a lot of inquisitive idiots. But... Let me ask you a stupid question. What does it mean to be alive? Now, that is kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? It's fairly easy to describe what it means to be alive. It, you know, in the easiest sense, it's to not be dead, right? I mean, to, to be living, to breathe, be breathing, to be taking nourishment, to be, have brain waves, to be functioning. But I think we all know there's a lot more to being alive than simply having physical consciousness, isn't there? 
What does it mean to be alive? Some, um, some years ago, a uh, movie was made called Dead Man Walking. It was, many of you, I'm sure, have seen it. It was, about the, it was the story of uh, a Roman Catholic nun who began working with uh, death row prisoners. But the title of the movie really came from a, a very common phrase that was used with death, mo- death row inmates um, many years before. It was uh, up until about 1960. It was common practice when death row inmates were walked to their execution for the wardens to walk them down the hall calling out, dead man walking, dead man walking here. You know the prayer will kill you? Now, take that in just for a moment. Prayer can kill you. Partly because while prayer is right at the heartbeat, right at the core of our relationship with God, it can become the thing that, that numbs, that anesthetizes us. And spiritually, we very easily become like dead men walking, don't we? Uh, I'm going to guess that a lot of us here both pray and even maybe pray a lot. And yet spiritually with, with our prayer lives, we can be like dead men walking. What's the problem? Why is prayer so difficult? Why is prayer such a struggle for us? Now, the easy answer, I suppose, is that, well, we just don't pray enough, or we just don't really trust God, or we, we just really don't take prayer seriously. But I'm not sure that's always the case. We've got to take a, a pace or two back and really look at what it means to pray. But there's a, there's a question underneath that question. You know, anybody can pray. Anybody can, can, can say words to God. Anybody can ask God for things. That's not unique to Christians. The real deeper question is, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be fully alive to God? And not be dead men walking. This prayer that we just read from Matthew 6 is a prayer that many of you, I suspect, know and could recite by memory. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you learned this in church or at camp or somewhere, but somewhere along the line, you know this prayer by heart. And you could say it by heart. Yeah, a lot of, most of us. Um, that's dangerous, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not a bad thing, but it, does, but it is risky. Because with this prayer that our Lord gave us, we can say it in our sleep. When I was a kid growing up, my parents taught me a couple of prayers that we would routinely pray at meals and at bedtime. At bedtime, we would always pray, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, that's a good prayer, okay? But I can spit that thing out. I, I no longer pray that prayer before I go to bed every night, but, you know, but I can spit that out pretty easily. But because it's so easy and so familiar, prayer can very easily become dead to me no matter how much I pray. I can very easily become a spiritual dead man walking. You know, every one of us, I'm, I'm going to guess, has struggles with prayer, no matter how much we pray. And we have struggles with prayer for a variety of reasons. Um, 
Sometimes there's this intimidation factor. You, you, you listen to people who pray a lot in public, and they've, they, they've, they, they really know how to pray with vividness and, uh, and, and eloquence, perhaps. That can be kind of intimidating, can't it? When you hear pre- people who really know how to pray, and you hear them pray, it kind of makes your prayers feel small, doesn't it? There's a lot of guilt that goes with praying as well. I mean, who here, I won't ask for a show of hands, but because anybody who would raise their hand, I would think you're a liar. Who here thinks they really pray enough? It's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? Who's going to say, yeah, I, I really pray enough. I don't, I don't need to pray. Nobody's going to say that. Yeah. So there's this sort of chronic sense of guilt that whatever my prayer life is like, it's probably not good enough. Okay. Whatever it's like. But it gets even worse. There's a, there's a sense for many of us that we're really not sure prayer does much. A lot of us have prayed very diligently, very passionately for things that are crucial to us. And nothing has happened, as far as we can tell. And so we, we may not admit it in polite company, we may not talk about it freely and openly, but deep in our hearts, we recycle that, that piercing and troubling question, does, does this really do anything? Does this really make any difference? We get that sense sometimes that our prayers just kind of bounce off the ceiling and stay right in the same room. We're just talking to ourselves. Do you ever have that feeling? Prayer's hard. Prayer, the the very thing that is kind of our lifeblood connection with God, can kill us. We become dead men walking. Why is that? Uh, I suppose most of us here would know that nobody who has a genuine relationship with God comes, nobody who has that relationship comes into it except by prayer. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, praying a certain prayer or some kind of magical incantation or formula. I'm not talking about that. But at the very least, anybody who's got a genuine relationship with God comes into that by talking to God. Even if it's as simple as, okay, I give. I surrender. I'm sorry. At, at, At some form... Everybody prays into a relationship with God, and yet that very act of communing with God that gives us that relationship sometimes so easily becomes dead to us. And we walk through the paces, dead men walking. Um, Todd has, has set up this whole series with the metaphor of the deep end, what it means to be able to to survive in the deep end of life? And what kinds of disciplines do we need in order to survive in the deep end of life? Some years ago, probably 13, 14 years ago, as best I can recall, I had uh, the opportunity to spend uh, a few days with some colleagues on a houseboat in Lake Powell, Utah. Many of you, I'm sure, have been there. Gorgeous, gorgeous place. Uh, if you don't know the story of Lake Powell, it's basically a, a whole Glen Canyon was flooded by the Colorado River, and so Lake Powell is, I think, the longest lake of sorts in the world, or at least the country, 120-plus miles long from top to bottom. And in many places, because it's a flooded canyon, in many places Lake Powell is two to 300 feet deep. 
So several years ago when my colleagues and I got to uh, the north end of Lake Powell, got on our, our boat and took off down the lake, uh, we went a little ways and then pulled into a sort of cove area where the water, our depth finder said, was about 250 feet deep. There was no shore, just a sheer cliff about 100 feet tall. And uh, we stopped and thought, well, let's go for a swim. So I jumped out. And I swam out from the boat 20 feet or so, paddled around a little while. And you have to understand, I'm, I'm not a great swimmer. Okay? My technique is not good. My hands and feet are small, so I don't, I don't get a lot of water. But I do the best I can. I get by. But I swam out from the boat 20 feet or so, paddled around a ways, and decided to swim back. Started to swim back to the boat. And I swam back to the boat. And I swam back to the boat. And I swam back to the boat, and I ran out of gas, and I was still 12 feet or so from the boat. What I had not realized is that when we stopped, we did not drop anchor. (laughs) The boat was drifting slowly away from me as I swam to it. Well, at that point, friends, swimming, for me, stopped being recreational. It was serious business. Why? Well, I wanted to live. (laughs) Now, I won't tell you the rest of the story. My wife, Sharon, who's here, is always on my back about starting stories and not not telling the end of the story because she needs closure. Well, I think the end of that story is probably obvious. (laughs) I I made it to the boat. But, you know, Todd's, Todd's metaphor is very appropriate. What does it mean to stay alive to God in the deep end of life? We can't do that without prayer, but sometimes prayer itself numbs us, it desensitizes us, it anesthetizes us, and we become spiritually dead men walking. I've seen this um, even among seminary students for, for 12 years now. Probably the number one struggle I hear from people preparing for various ministry roles is with their prayer life. It's a struggle for all. Well, this text that we, uh, that we just read, what we call often the Lord's Prayer, sadly, tragically, has become domesticated. It's become sanitized. It's become safe for us because we've memorized it. We, we, say it, we can say it in our sleep. Uh, in some cases, we'll, we'll recite it in worship in, in some churches. It's become a very safe prayer. But I want to suggest this morning that this prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, It's like a bombshell that God drops right in the middle of us. And it's a bombshell that rattles every assumption that we naturally bring to prayer. And it's the one prayer, if we really look at it, that can help bring us back alive to God. But we've got to look at what what Jesus is doing here. Uh, First of all, you'll notice that he, he takes aim at two very common tendencies or dangers that we face in prayer. Now, the first, he points at the, uh, the, the hypocrites of his day. Of course, we can all think of people we would think to be hypocrites. It's always them, not us, which is a good thing. I wouldn't want that to be me. Um, but he points at the hypocrites of his day, and he says, don't pray like them because, and I'm going to paraphrase this maybe for, for our time. He says, don't get obsessed with the way you pray or the, uh, the amount that you pray. 
Because the hypocrites have become preoccupied with prayer itself. They've become preoccupied with the kind of impression they leave on others in terms of how well they pray, how artful their prayers are. Don't be like that, he said. Don't get all wrapped up about prayer itself. But if that's your tendency, if you're starting to get preoccupied with your praying itself, here's what you do. Go lock yourself in your closet. Go out to your garage. Go get by yourself somewhere where you can't impress anybody and just talk to your father. You know, that's a pretty appropriate indictment for some of us, particularly those of us who pray in public a lot, those who lead people in prayer, those who stand and preach sermons on prayer. It's very easy to get wrapped up in prayer itself. And you know what, what this text is going to tell us in, in a variety of ways is that prayer itself is not the point. Being alive to God is the point. Prayer is really only a, it's only a, like a keyhole that we look through. Now, some of you, I'm guessing many of you are old enough to remember old-fashioned keyholes. Now, now, with magnetic card keys, you know, those who've never opened a door with anything but a magnetic card key would have no clue what I'm talking about. But a lot of you will remember the old-fashioned keyholes and the old long clunky keys you'd put in them. Well, these keyholes, you know, they're about a half, no, maybe a quarter of an inch wide, about three quarters of an inch long. You know, and it's kind of cool if you go to an old hotel that has antique furnishings. You know, you go in, you get to use that old three-inch long key. But when I was a kid, the real beauty of a keyhole was that you could see into a room through it. Now, I won't ask how many of you have spied on others through keyholes, but I know some of you have. But a keyhole is, a prayer in a sense is like a keyhole. The object, the point is not prayer. The point is that when we look through prayer as a keyhole, we learn all kinds of things about how we view God, about what what we think it means to trust God. How we pray tells us all kinds of things about what it means to us to engage God. Prayer is a keyhole. Okay? through this, uh, this first warning that Jesus gives us, he points to the danger of becoming preoccupied with prayer itself rather than what we see through the keyhole and how we engage God. The, the second warning he gives us is to not be like the pagans of his day who, who rattle on and on and on in prayer. Now, if that sounds strange, remember that that the people of Jesus' day, or the, the, the culture of Jesus' day, was a praying culture. By no means are Christians the only ones who pray. Some years ago when I was um, studying on this subject, uh, I was looking for uh, cute little quotations on prayer, and I came across, to my surprise, I came across glowing commendations about prayer from people of all kinds of faiths and political leaders and uh, philosophers, it seems like everybody thinks prayer is a great thing, except for those who would think there is nobody to pray to. You can find all kinds of people who think prayer is an important thing to do. 
Nothing unique to, to Christians about that. And, and certainly the pagans of Jesus' day, those who did not know the Lord God, they were intense prayers. We might look at them and say, wow, I wish I could pray like that. Well, guess what? No, you don't. Jesus says, that, that here's, here's what those who really do not know the Lord God, this is how they pray. They think that God is, is kind of standing back, standing aloof, and God's got the goods that we need. And he's waiting to see who can make the best case, who can pray the most, or who can, who can spin the most persuasive argument for why he should come and make the crops grow or make the sun rise another day. And Jesus says, don't be like the pagans because they think that God only hears them if, they, if they're able to twist God's arm. And so they, they, they rattle on and on and on. And Jesus says, don't do that. But when you pray, keep in mind that your Father knows what you need before you open your mouth. And He's not standing aloof waiting to be coerced or argued or persuaded. But He's there seeing our needs and owning our needs before we even express them. Those are ground rules for prayer. Don't get preoccupied with prayer itself and and don't think that God is kind of back in the woods holding the goods waiting for you to make the best case. Know that He cares and He knows before you even speak. Now, that, that being the case, Jesus says, when you pray, and He assumes that we do, doesn't even tell us to pray, He says, when you, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, now we're going we're to stop at, at each of these phrases and, and look at how they bring us back to life. Our Father, it's often, uh, often claimed that, that, that when Jesus calls the Father Abba, that's the word that a, that a child, a little child would use, for, it, it would be the equivalent of our word Daddy. Um, those who study that word intimately have concluded that's really not the case. It's more that, that when Jesus calls the Father Abba, that's really more the, the, uh, the word that an adult child would call their father in that, that kind of knowing adult relationship, Dad, Dad. But he says, pray like this and st- recognize that you have been given access to God, not as some holder of the goods off in the woods, but access to God as your father. In other words, you've been drawn into, you've been invited into a relationship with God. Now, that's, that's very customary language. I know you know that. But against the backdrop of how we sometimes treat God, how we sometimes pray, um, we're not always, I'm convinced, we're not always praying as if God really is our Father. Now, for some of us, that's probably difficult because I know that in, in any group of Christians, there are, there are folks who've had very, very bad experiences with a father. There may be issues of broken trust and issues of abandonment and all kinds of, of uh, just unspeakable tales of brokenness and tragedy and loss that for you have been associated with a father. But here's where God 
comes to us and begins to show us at last, this is what it really means to have a father, one who cares, one who does not abandon, one who knows your needs before you even speak. And so right out of the gate, that concept of father gets redeemed, gets healed, gets touched for some of us. But he goes on, our father who is in heaven, may your name be holy. In other words, Father, I need, to, I need to recognize that though you have come to me and you've offered me intimacy, you've offered me communion, you've offered me closeness, still when I call you Father, I'm dealing with the one God of all. I can't trivialize you. I can't take you lightly. I can't treat you in a flippant or a cavalier manner. But, but Father, may your name stay holy to me. May your name stay holy to me. May I never forget who I'm really dealing with. May I never take you lightly or treat you in in a flippant manner. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be hallowed or holy. May it be special in my life. And may your kingdom come. Now, realize that, that, that so far in all of this, Jesus has not told us to ask for a thing. Until we get to this one, you, may your kingdom come. And even then, we're not asking for needs, but we're declaring uh, to God, we're, we're declaring to ourselves that, that this world, and, and however great it may be, and however much we may enjoy about it, this world is not our final home. This is not what we were made for. We were not made for loss of relationship. We were not made for death. We were not made for abandonment. We were not made for mistrust. Sometimes it's, it's awfully easy to get sort of enamored of what the world offers as if that's where the real goods are. Jesus says, you, you pray remembering and you pray asking that God brings his kingdom. Stan Grenz, who's wrote a, written a wonderful book on this, calls... Uh, he t- he, he uses the phrase, the cry for the kingdom. You know, we sang, uh, we sang a little bit earlier about this where, you know, we anticipate that resurrection. I will, we will rise again and there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. Lord, may your kingdom come. I know that many of you, like me, have scars on your soul. You have losses in your memory bank. You have sins that you would love to erase from your memory. And it's all those scars that are etched into our souls that make us, when we're really honest, cry, God, bring your kingdom. May your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. You know, uh, part of our praying has to be that constant bending of our will to our Father because if... Aren't we all liking this, that, that our will is strong and that on a, on, a, on a daily, if not even an hourly basis, we have to follow our Lord's example and, and bend that will. And th- Your will be done, not mine. Your will be done. You know, that's costly for every one of us when, um, you know, when we face decisions that uh, would take us in very different ways from the path of our Lord. I mean, we'll face that sometimes in, in our workplaces when, 
when we're confronted with the option to, to, to cut a corner, to cheat, to undermine for the sake of our own advancement. We have to constantly pray that prayer, Lord, your will be done when we are faced with that choice of taking the high road, maybe taking a loss rather than violating the will of the Lord. Hard, hard stuff. Lord, your will be done. On earth, right here, right now, just as it is for others. Give us this day, Jesus says, our daily bread. No matter how much food is in the pantry, no matter how much money is in the bank, every one of us live on a thin thread of security. Those who've lost jobs in these recent two years know how tenuous that can be. Those who've encountered crushing, tragic, and sudden losses of a life or of a relationship know how tenuous that can be. This is not to make us paranoid by any means, but it is to say that part of the way we relate to God as fully alive people is to daily recognize that we are moment by moment dependent upon the grace of God. No matter how much money's in the bank, no matter how much food's in the pantry. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And Lord, forgive us Forgive us our sins as we forgive our, forgive us our, debtor, our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, the other version of the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, this prayer keeps us right back at the dead center of what it means to be alive to God, which is to be a forgiven person and to spend on a daily basis that currency of forgiveness. You know, I've got a little wad of mostly dollar bills here in my pocket. It's, it's amazing to me how I spend money almost every day. Have you ever think about that? Now, most of these dollar bills I end up spending on coffee. But whether I'm paying a bill online, you know, or there's an automatic withdrawal coming out, it seems like there is money, there's currency going through my fingers almost every day. To be alive to God means that we live by another kind of currency. We live by a currency of forgiveness. And we only have currency to spend as we have received that currency. And when we receive that currency of being forgiven, um, we have to forgive. Jesus says, and this is breathtaking, it goes both ways. To be forgiven means you got to forgive. I know that's hard work, that's difficult work, sometimes that's long and complex work. But we are people who have to be about the business of forgiving to be fully alive. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here we approach the end of this prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. This model that he gave us for how to be alive to God in prayer. He says, you pray recognizing to God, admitting to God that this life is a perilous journey. That there are temptations, there are enticements, there are, there are things that will derail us from true life at every turn. Every day we need the grace of God to protect us 
from those forces that would draw us away from him. Protect us, our Lord, from, from all of those enticements that would, that would desensitize us to our need for the daily, moment-by-moment grace of God. Protect us from that temptation, Father, and, and deliver us from the evil one. Now, what is, what is it we're to pray when we pray for deliverance or protection from the evil one? Are we to pray that bad things never happen to us? Well, I'll be honest, I do pray those kinds of prayers. I, I pray for protection against things going wrong, against bad things happening. But I know enough to know that Christians die in earthquakes too. Christians die of cancer, too. And Christians lose their jobs, too. Christians lose relationships, too. To pray for God's protection from the evil one is not merely praying that no bad things will happen to us because we know they do. But to pray God's protection from the evil one is to pray that that evil will not undo us. It will not be the final word on our lives. It will not have control over us. In a sense, it's a, in one sense, it's a prayer that when we are on the experiencing end of evil, that we ourselves don't become evil. Many of you are familiar with the, uh, the famous novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, that was also made into a, a movie and a Broadway show. The story of a French, a poor French peasant and the, uh, in the years leading up to the French Revolution. His name was Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean stole a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. And he was caught. And he was sentenced to 19 years hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. And as the story unfolds, we see Valjean finally released from his sentence. And after 19 years, not only of hard labor, but of physical abuse... Jean Valjean has taken on the character of evil that was dished out to him. Lord, protect us from the evil one. Protect us from becoming the evil that we so resist. This uh, this safe, domesticated, sanitized prayer that we can pray almost in our sleep is kind of like a bombshell. Because when you and I become anesthetized and desensitized and numb to prayer, either because we don't feel like we pray enough, we feel guilty, or we're not sure prayer really works, we're just disillusioned. We become so rote about it that for all practical purposes, we're dead men walking. This prayer opens up... um, Not just a new magical way of praying for us. That's not the point of the Lord's Prayer. It's not the magic prayer. It's the prayer that shows us, kind of through that keyhole, what it means to really trust a God who does not always insulate us against bad things, but commits himself to us in those bad things. What it means to to make requests of God Sometimes constantly, but, but not in a, in a panicky, anxious manner, making, but making constant requests of God because we, we know that he's committed himself to us. He is not just God out there. He is our Father. It's a prayer that, that opens up in front of us a, a way of being alive that, that keeps us anchored in those, those most core 
realities of our lives. Forgiveness. Open-handed neediness to God. People who were made for his kingdom and hunger for that kingdom. Keeps us in touch with those. And if we look at it really honestly and really closely, we'll realize that these are the kinds of prayers we pray when sometimes we're just desperate. These are the kinds of prayers we pray when sometimes we're right on the cusp of fury and anger. These are the kinds of prayers we pray when we're so disoriented we don't know what's up and what's down. And if we're real honest with each other, I suspect that makes up a lot of the times in our lives. Yeah, we can, we can come together, we can greet each other, we can give each other words of blessing, we can smile and treat each other politely, but behind that veneer, for many of us, much of the time, we're living with anxieties and fears and injustices, questions about the future that cripple our souls. We become dead men walking. Well, prayer is not the magic antidote to that. God is the antidote to that. And this prayer and many other parts of Scripture show us how to trust God, show us how to engage God, how to relate to God, what it means when God is not just the genie in the bottle who, if we rub the bottle just right, will come out and grant our wishes. This is why I call the Lord's Prayer a bombshell because it rattles our preconceptions about prayers and it brings us alive. You see, prayer as our Lord taught us to pray, prayer as our Lord taught us to relate to God is not merely prayer that kind of tidies up our lives and makes everything work. Prayer is the way we bring everything in our lives to God and deal with God about it. If you want to grow in prayer, sometimes read the Psalms. Now, we'll, we'll love to pick certain of the Psalms out and you know, we'll make songs out of them or we'll make, uh, you know, make nice little prayers out of them. But, but it's funny how we always choose those Psalms that are good day Psalms. Psalms when life is glorious and God is so palpably near and God is so glorious and good and rich and we're so in love with God and we, we love to sing those Psalms and and, and grab onto those. But you know what? If we read all of the Psalms, there's a lot of raw material in there. A lot of Psalms where David or the other psalmists are, are just are, are clutching God by the lapels, as it were, and saying, God, which, which, why don't you listen to me? Where are you? Where did you go? Why, why do I feel like just when I needed you, you walked away? That's in Scripture. That doesn't sound like a very holy way to pray, does it? But you know what? We're given the Psalms and and we're given many other examples in Scripture of how to take every conceivable human experience, every conceivable human emotion to God in prayer. No territory is off limits. That's what it means to be alive to God. Not to be a, 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 a kind of nicely socialized, domesticated prayer who always prays impressive prayers and just prays constantly asking God for this, that, and the other thing, but a person who's got enough rock-solid confidence in God that we can engage God when nothing makes sense and trust God. 
this pattern of prayer, this being alive to God in prayer is a kind of trust in God that cannot predict the outcome of God's faithfulness, but knows nonetheless that God is faithful. We don't know what God will do. We don't know when God will spare us. We don't know when God will let us suffer. But we know he's committed him to us. He's committed himself to us as father and that he cares for us. That is wild. That's a wild journey. That's the journey that we're called to engage with God in prayer. That's what keeps us truly alive in the deep end. Let's pray. Our Father, you have committed yourself to us, and we receive that with gratitude, and we ask, as we were taught to ask, that you not ever let us take that for granted. We ask you, Father, by your grace to sustain us moment by moment. We ask you to keep us centered, keep us anchored in that which alone will give us life through Jesus Christ. We ask you to bring us fully back to life and keep us alive Keep us alive in the hope of the kingdom. Keep us alive to you, loving you with our whole being and loving each other, loving our neighbors, even loving our enemies as we love ourselves. Keep us alive, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.